or temple with the deepest awe. It is his unfailing love that lets us come in here, that lets us worship him, Jesus, because he tore the veil. And then we worship in his presence with the deepest awe. What are you in awe of this morning when you think about how great our God is? When we think about the fact that he is the name above all names, the fact that he is worthy of all praise, or the fact that, that is that, just that litany of freedoms we were reminded of a moment ago, freedom in Christ, freedom as believers, far greater than the freedom we could ever celebrate as a society. We're grateful for that, but the freedom in Christ is greater. There's nothing like it. And it allows us and it invites us, he ushers us into his presence. And... One of the great mysteries of our faith is the closer we get to the Lord, the better we get to know Jesus, the more in awe of him we become. He doesn't, in some ways, he becomes more desirable, but he also becomes more mysterious, more majestic, more awesome. There is none like our Savior, the Lord Jesus. There is none like our Heavenly Father. There is none like the Holy Spirit, who if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, lives in, within you. He is working in your life, in your heart at this very moment. And, and what he invites of us is our worship. What he asks of us is surrender. What he, what he calls us to is just deep, deep dependence and trust in him. And Father, we're thankful that, that as we go on this journey, as, as Marv put it, Lord, whether we're rookies or we're veterans or somewhere else along the path, Father, we we're just so grateful today for the fact that we know you, that you love us, that we have been set free, Lord, that as Galatians 5.1 says, that it is for freedom that you set us free and do not want us to return again to a yoke of slavery and bondage. That is not the abundant life Jesus came to give us. And yet, Father, we're not all in the happiest of circumstances today. Some of us come with great joys and some of us come with deep sorrow. We come with unfulfilled longings. We come with, with fresh blessings. Lord, there's such a mix, and we know that only you are sufficient to meet us in all those various places and bring us safely and quietly, gently to the feet of Jesus, where we'll find whatever it is, the grace and the mercy we need, and also allow us to give you our praise. Father, I thank you for great songs of the faith. I thank you that probably for the most part, Father, we didn't even need lyrics on a screen for some of these songs today because you have embedded them in our hearts and you've used them to teach us to worship and, and we're grateful for that. Father, I thank you for the journey we've taken to the cross and now we're going to dig into your word. And Father, I pray that as we do that right now, as we open the scriptures, it would as always, Lord, though we have to hear the preaching through the voice of a man, we we want to hear the presence, the movement, the, the work of your spirit, the voice of your spirit in our ears and in our hearts. Father, no preacher can change a heart, but the spirit of God can change anything. Father, your word in another place says that the word of God is like a, a hammer that shatters a rock. The word of God is like a fire that purifies a heart. Father, I don't know which, which one any of us needs, the hammer, the fire, Lord, the gentle touch. I don't know what it is, but I plead with you to bring it today, that you would bring to our hearts what it is we need from you, that you would conform us more to the image of Christ, 
And Father, we would find ourselves grateful and glad whether we, whether we shuffled into the living room and turned on the TV to worship today or we stepped into the sanctuary here. Father, I pray that you would awaken us, that you would stir us. You would not let today be ordinary because you're not ordinary. Father, as we go to your word now, we ask as always, Lord, I plead with you as always that you would be the one who teaches, that Holy Spirit, you would guide us in truth, you would guard us from error, you would deliver us from distraction, you would help us to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in the preaching of your word, and may we see Jesus only this morning in the preaching of your word. And when we walk out the doors in a little while to another beautiful summer day, Father, a weekend in which we have celebrated freedom, I pray that it is the freedom in Christ that we would cherish and celebrate most because of how much it costs and the love that it showed. Father, it is Jesus we love, it is Jesus we serve, it is Jesus we seek, and it is Jesus in whose name we pray as all God's people said together, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning. So good to see all of you here. Uh, it is so much fun as we are, as we are seeking the Lord, as we are singing to him together, that even though numerically we're still rather small, we're not all back in the house yet, you wouldn't have known it if you were standing in the front row this morning as I listened to our worship. It is so good, so good to hear these songs of praise going up to the Lord. And now we want to get into his word. And so I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, to take it out. And I want you to meet me in your Bible in James chapter 4. Today our plan, our aim is to finish the fourth chapter of James, uh, uh, if God so directs, as the plan is currently, but as this sermon is going to be all about, God's free to change plans whenever he wants to. We're going to we're going to finish out the book of James by the end of this month, but, but again, we're continuing to do it in in relatively small pieces, small doses, because there's so much here, so much here to say, and so much here uh, for us to process. So find your way to James chapter 4. I'll read it in just a moment. And, and as you do, I just, I just want to mention, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but a couple of weeks ago I, I said, I think when we were in uh, several verses back, that I think every Sunday when you come to church, you ought to laugh at least once. There ought to be something that makes you smile. And I feel like the Lord's just been doing that for me this morning already. Uh, for one thing, I, I think like maybe, maybe a third to a half of the guys in the room were all wearing blue shirts and khakis today. I don't know if you noticed that, but Marv had them on and I had them on. And, and I, I just want you to know I, I picked mine out first. I ironed mine yesterday morning. Uh, I'm way ahead of the rest of you. And, and, and it's also just a good reminder that if you don't get to visit with one of us today, we'll be at Best Buy this afternoon. You can, uh, you can come find us there and we'd be happy to, to chat you up. Uh, there. I also, I, la I had to laugh this morning. I love it. I think I've heard the greatest evangelistic call I've ever heard in my life this morning in communion. Uh, when Marv said, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. If you haven't yet trusted Christ, come on, what's the deal? Um, I'm going to use that sometime. And I loved it. That was fantastic. So it's good to be with family. It's good to be together. And it is good to come in the presence of the Lord. And even sometimes when our hearts are heavy to know that there is nevertheless an undercurrent of joy. I hope that's what we can say by the time we're done studying God's word today. As James is going to be bold and clear once again as he speaks to us. I'm going to begin reading this morning as you have your Bible handy now. In James 4, I'm going to read from verse 13 down to the end of the chapter, verse 17. This is what the word of God says. James says, Come now, you who say... 
that today or tomorrow we're going to go to such and such a city. We're going to spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. You know, on New Year's Day of this year, 2020, none of us, not a person on the planet, could have imagined what the first six months of this year was going to hold in store. No one outside a small circle of scientists somewhere far from here had ever even heard the term COVID-19 before. And, and even among those who had and, and the rest of us who hadn't, I don't think there was perhaps a person on the planet who could have imagined, who could have dreamed that in a matter of just a few short weeks and then a, a couple of months on top of that, this thing we'd never heard of called COVID-19 would have led to 400 million worldwide job losses. That it, that it would have led to a 96% reduction in daily airline travel. That it would have meant that those of us here in America who do still have jobs, that more than half of us would be working remotely, not going into an office anymore, and not doing so again for the foreseeable future. Now, if you had known about all that, if you had known such things were going to happen, you would have surely, as would I have, invested in Zoom, uh, which went from 10 million daily users in December to 300 million in the month of April. You would have invested, if it's possible, to do so in Netflix, which in the month of April alone, uh, uh, statistics say that Americans watch, get this, 6.1 billion hours of Netflix in a 30-day span. You would have invested in that, and it would have been a good move. And if I had shown you six months ago on New Year's Day this picture from a website I found called The Art of Quarantine... Well, back in the first of the year, that would have gotten puzzled looks. But today, today it makes complete sense. That is, in a snapshot, the lives that many of us have been living. And, and once again, what all of that proves, what all of it shows, is what I have said to you many times before. We as human beings are terrible prophets. We as human beings are lousy Prophets. And while, while a, a major theme of this morning's text is exactly that, that none of us really knows what the future holds, I would submit to you as we begin this morning that it's not the only theme of these five verses. I'm not even convinced it's the primary theme of these five verses because I believe, having looked into it and what I want to share with you this morning, what it shows is that James's message in these five verses is that as followers of Christ who want to flourish, which if you know Jesus this morning, I hope that's exactly what you are. You're someone who wants to flourish in any and every season of life. Listen, the knowledge that we can't predict the future, the fact that we don't know what tomorrow holds ought to radically reshape the way we live our lives every single day. And so to that end, what I want to show you in these five verses 
There are five things I want to direct your attention to, one in each verse. And, and as I was thinking about it and preparing the message this week, I, I'm going to do this in a way, and this isn't necessarily revolutionary by any means, but I'm going to do it in a way I don't think in 20 years I've ever preached a sermon before. Because usually what I'll give you is a certain number of principles or keys or points or actions that we can do. But I, I, just, I couldn't settle in on that this week. And so what I simply want to do with these five verses, and I think, I hope, it's going to do the job, is simply direct your attention to five phrases. Five little phrases, one in each verse, that James puts before us that I think when we put them together capture the essence of the message of this passage. So that's what I have for you. Five phrases here that deserve our attention. Five phrases I believe deserve our attention. The first one, of course, is in verse 13. And it is the phrase, you who say. The first phrase that demands our attention here is the phrase, you who say. You know, by nature, by nature, some of us, and by saying us, I count myself in this group, we are meticulous planners. We like checklists. We like plans. We like schedules and calendars to know what's supposed to happen and when it's supposed to happen. We like having a to-do list and just marking one thing off after another. I don't know about you. With my to-do list, I do things, and then I go back and add them and cross them off just for the satisfaction of knowing that I got something done today. That's some of us. Now, there are others of us, of course, who fall into a, an opposite camp. You are spontaneous. You love to live for the moment. You love to change plans, to turn on a dime. You still have ideas and, and strategies, but you're far more spur of the moment than, than we are. And, and I'm sure you know which camp you fall into, but, but you know, behind either of those styles... Strategic, meticulous planners, spontaneous, fly by the seat of your pantsers. Behind both, <laughs> behind both of that wasn't in the notes. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but behind both of those styles, I think you agree when I say that all of us have a pretty good idea what we want in life, or what we want in this season of life. And and not only do we know what we want, we have certain ideas of how we're going to get there or how we're going to acquire it. They may be good ideas, they may be terrible ideas, but we know what we want and we have an idea of how to get there. And since I believe what I'm saying, therefore, is to some degree all of us are planners, therefore, because that's true, what I can also affirm for us is that James, therefore, was speaking to all of us when he said, look at verse 13, come now, you who who say, you're in the you who say. You and I are all part of that group. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a city. We're going to spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Now, let me be clear. God is not anti-plan. God is not anti-ambition. I believe you can go many, many places in the Scripture and find, find lists of verses and passages that would assure us that, that God does call us in certain respects to be people who plan to count the cost, as Jesus said. I think there are plenty of verses going all the way back uh, to, to the creation story of Adam and Eve in Genesis that ambition is a very good thing in many respects in God's eyes. He said, go, be fruitful, multiply, conquer the earth, do, do all of that stuff. God is not anti-plan. God is not anti-ambition. You know what God is anti? According to this passage, God is anti-presumption. God is anti 
presumption. That is to say, he is squarely opposed to the practice of crafting plans without consulting him. Of brainstorming schemes and then afterwards, if you think so, then asking his blessing. Lord, here's what I came up with. Make it work. Because he is, as, as one commentator on the text says, that the picture James presents here is of someone who is, quote, self-assertive in their plans, self-confident in their schedule, and self-centered in their relationships. You may not check all three of those boxes, but I bet you check at least one. At least most of us would say, probably, truth be told, we're self-centered in our relationships. We want what we want more than we want almost anything else. And you know, as another commentator with that in mind soberly warns us, such an attitude, such an attitude, self-confident, presumption, this is what I am going to do, this is where I'm going to go, this is how it's going to turn out. There's another commentator who points out how frighteningly similar that is to the cry of Lucifer in Isaiah 14. And what caused him to fall from heaven when he said, I will ascend to the clouds. I will ascend to the throne of the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will. And God said, oh, no, you won't. And it cost him everything. And since there are times when I think that way, there are times when you, when, when we, maybe even collectively as, as, as the people of God, as a church, think that way. This is what we're going to do, and this is how it's going to happen. Since, since all of us, again, fall into that little phrase, you who say, James has a message for us in verse 14. It's the second phrase I want you to see. The second phrase James gives us to consider is this, you don't know. <laughs> you who say, you don't know. You know, I cannot recall anymore how many times I have in ministry sat across the table, across the, the room from a young, giddy, fresh-faced couple who have come to me because I'm their pastor and they want me to do their wedding. They're, I know that's why they're coming. They've told me that's what they are there for, and, and they are excited, and they are enthusiastic. And I realize there are some of you in this room and watching who have done this. I'm not picking on you. Hang with me, Okay. But, but they come in, and, and they say, we want to get married, and, 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 and here's what we want you to do, and here's how it's supposed to be. And, and, I, and I can't tell you how many times when that has happened, I have been asked the question, well, just, just tell me a little bit about your plans for the future. You've told me what you want, but tell me where you're headed. And I get some version of the following. Well, we've got a five-year plan, more or less a, a five-year plan. I mean, we want to have a family. Now, now, he wants a big family, and I want a small one, but, but we know we want a family, but we don't want it yet. We'd like about three to five years before that happens. Uh, because in those three to five years, well, we both want to establish our careers and, and we want to save up some money. And of course, if we're going to have a family, we should probably buy a house. And, and of course, we want to travel as much as possible because once the kids come along, we've, told, we've been told it's not so easy and it's not so cheap. I mean, this is our plan and it's sweet. <laughs> and I smile but I am still waiting now, 20 years in, for, for one of those, even one of those couples to come back at the five-year mark and say, it all worked exactly like we planned it to. It all went down according to schedule. And, and, and again, don't get me wrong. Uh, my wife and I, we said it too. We had a plan. 
It involved grad school and, and seminary and finding the right church. And, and we had all sorts of ideas going in, getting started, having no idea at the time that within three years we'd have two children. In the first seven years, we'd move six times. And, and nothing went according to plan. I never wanted to be a telemarketer. I just didn't. And I did it twice. And it was, it was bad. And, uh, and, you know, your story's different, but your experience is the, almost certainly the same. Everybody's experience is the same. Verse 14. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. In other words, life is short and things will change. Life is short. Things will change. And while the rest of verse 14, look at it, there's a sense you can read it with a, with a, as if it's a note of despair. As if this is something to lament when James says, you're just a, a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. All we are is dust in the wind. It sounds sad, but it's not. Actually, I want to affirm for you that it's not. Because, well, as Christians, the Bible, what have I just said? It emphatically assures us we're not in charge. We're not in control. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what God has in mind for us. We don't know how the world situation is going to change. But hey, guess what? Don't be afraid. We belong to the one who does. We belong to the sovereign God, the creator God who made it, who designed it, and who is in control of it. He has numbered your days. He has laid out your plan. He is in control, and he is the one who crafts every detail of our lives according to his master plan. So we don't know. You don't know, but repeat after me, he does. He does. He knows. He's got a plan, and that's why the third phrase I want you to note here is in verse 15. And I think of the five, it's, it's, it's easily, you could have probably already determined this yourself, it's the central one. It's this. Phrase number three, if the Lord wills. Phrase number three is if the Lord wills. Now that is not, if the Lord wills, on one hand, a, some sort of fatalistic cliche. Well, que sera, sera, right? Whatever will be, will be. Uh, it doesn't involve any responsibility for me because it's not that, nor is it some sort of, as I think it has been misused many times in church history, some sort of magic incantation that if I just say, if God wills, he's going to give me what I want. It's the way to, to claim, to name, and to claim, and to secure my desired blessings. That is not what if the Lord wills is. Instead, learning to say and ultimately live by that declaration, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, it is an admission. It's a surrendering admission saying, I live, I breathe, I serve at his pleasure, not the other way around. I am his servant he, Jesus, is not mine. And you know what that means? It means that sometimes, listen, because he's a good, good father, because he loves you so much, because of his amazing, endless love, you even get to enter into his presence. You know what? Sometimes because he's your father, he gives you exactly what you asked for. He gives you what you wanted, when you wanted. It's better than you could have imagined. He does it in the time. I mean, God does that. You know, it, it's not that 
that he doesn't, but, but it also means learning to live by the, not just the mantra, but the conviction, if the Lord wills, means that he is free to do entirely otherwise anytime he wants, and he doesn't need my permission to do it. He's not going to ask for my say-so. It means it can go either way. And, and that as believers, there's a sense in which we have to live in that tension. Again, the message is this, plan, but don't presume. Plan, but don't presume. Because, and here's why. Because as Christians, we are called to live our lives in Christ the same way that at the beginning, at the starting line, we came to Christ. We were saved by grace through faith. We were saved by faith, not our own works. And it's very, very clear. We are to live every day of our lives in the same fashion. We are to live by faith. And therefore, I don't like it any more than you do. However, here's the deal. I don't get 100% certainty in anything, in situations. Now, his promises are clear, but in circumstances, I don't get 100% clarity. I'm not given 100% certainty, and neither are you, because if you always had 100% clarity and 100% certainty, and all the boxes could be checked, and all the, the, the I's and T's can get their dots and crosses, then listen, you don't have to live by faith. You get to live independently. You have to live by faith. And without faith, it's impossible to live a life that is pleasing to God. Now, again, that may bother us. That may, at times, even frighten or discourage us. But it shouldn't. Because what James, again, is reminding us here, and I want you to look at verse 15 for this, because, as always in the Bible, word choice matters. Because James reminds us that he is Lord. I think there's a reason he didn't say that if God wills, if the Father wills, if Jesus, no, if the Lord wills, because Lord, that word is master. That word is sovereign one. If the sovereign one wills, we will do this and that. If, if the master of all things, who is also my heavenly Father, who loves me beyond measure and pours grace into my life every single day, if he, the Lord, wills. And what that can help remind us is, listen, though I must walk by faith, though I'm not promised 100% certainty that we can't wait till every detail's worked out in order to move forward, you never see that in the lives of God's great heroes of faith in the Bible. They always had to walk by faith. But guess what? It's okay. Because he is working on an immeasurably greater scale than we can possibly imagine. And he's also immeasurably deeper into the details than we could ever possibly dream. He's got the big and the small under control. And that's why there's a fourth phrase we need to go to. Number one, he said, I've got to say, you who say this and that, you need to understand, I need to remember, we don't know. The way we should live is according to the principle, if the Lord wills, because, here's the fourth phrase in verse 16 we need to look at, all such boasting. Because there's something we need to know about what James terms all such boasting. You know, I don't know if you've discovered this in your walk with Jesus, as I have, but it's never fun when God calls your sin by its real name. (laughs) When, when he rips the label off that I put on it, and he shows me the truth of what it is. 
such as what I call robust conversation. He goes, oh, no, no, that's gossip. No, when, 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 when we call it a, a so-called, well, it's, it's just an appreciation of beauty. You know, God says, actually, what that is is lust. Or, or as we talked about just even, even last Sunday, what we often claim and call righteous indignation, he says, sounds a lot like unwholesome speech to me. And, and, and the reason I bring it up is because the same thing goes here. When we make plans, when we make plans as believers without seeking him, and, and we do it under whatever, whatever label we want to, we call it strategic planning, or we, we, call it, we, we call it rugged individualism, we call it personal initiative, and, and there are respects in which those things are appropriate, but when we do that in the spiritual realm without seeking him First, verse 16 says, what we are really doing is boasting in our arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Now, James says that. He probably says it for a lot of reasons, but, but he says that, and, and God calls our presumptuous boasting evil in part because because presuming and, and then pursuing what we think is best without seeking God first, well, it, it, it runs right in violation of actually everything James has been talking about so far in chapter 4. In fact, if you wanted to go back through, through James chapter 4 and you wanted one word to put on it, what is the theme of James chapter 4? I, I think you'd, you'd struggle to do better than the word humility. James chapter 4 is a message on humility, and presumption is the very opposite of humility. I mean, just look at, at, you can walk back through it. I'm not going to read the, the whole passage, but, but it's there. What is the source of quarrels, verse 1, and conflicts among you? It's the pleasures, waging war in your members. It's fighting for what you want. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. Verse 2, you, you don't even have in the first place because you never stop to ask. Therefore, verse 6, he is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit therefore to God because... The place of surrender is, is where direction and hope and life is found. Uh, draw near and, and cleanse your hands. Grieve, verse 9, over your sins. Humble yourselves in his presence, verse 10. Don't speak against one another, verse 11. Don't judge each other because there's only one lawgiver and judge, verse 12. The theme over and over is live out of a place of holy humility. And, and so James is saying, listen, I, I'm just in keeping with the greater argument here. We should not presume because that's not the way we're called to live. But there's a second reason as well. And it's a more perhaps practical reason. James tells us that all such boasting, presuming is evil, because when a, a presumptuous spirit, when it's left unchecked, when it isn't reined in, presumption inevitably, inevitably, listen to me, produces trouble. It inevitably leads to trouble. And as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but think of, and I know he's an easy punching bag, and I don't mean him that way, but I thought of Peter and, and how often that showed up in his life. Now, Peter was the chief of the apostles, and he got a lot done for Jesus. But, but something Jesus had to work out of him and, and deal within him was a presumptuous spirit. Classic example, Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is where Peter is the first one on the planet to clearly and openly and correctly confess Jesus as Messiah. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter gets a great big pat on the back, a great big commendation, and then you read like three more verses. You keep going in the passage, and, 
And what you find is Peter turns around and now he's telling the Lord, oh, no, no, you're not going to Jerusalem. You will not lay down your life. I'm not letting them nail you to a cross. And what's Jesus turn around and say, get behind me, Satan. You have set, listen, you have set your mind on man's interests, not God's. You're being presumptuous. You think you know better. You go a chapter later, he does it again. Matthew 17, the the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter along with James and John to the mountaintop. He shows them his, his glory. Moses and Elijah show up, and it's this beautiful moment, and Peter, who can never keep his mouth shut or his hand still, says, hey, guys, let's build some altars. Let's, let's do something here. And, and he's looking around for a hammer, and he's scrounging up nails, and suddenly there is a voice from the clouds, the voice of the Father, who says the equivalent, my translation, zip it, Peter. Zip it, Peter. Listen to him. Listen to my son. He'll tell you what you're supposed to do. Don't presume. Don't take it into your own hands. Listen to him. And and in each of those instances, Peter's error, well, it's the same error that James is warning against here, getting ahead of God's plan, getting outside of God's plan, saying, Lord, I I think I can handle this one. I've got a pretty good idea what to do. That is to say, it's acting without asking, speaking before seeking, presuming instead of praying. It's so easy to do, but... But what James is saying is that all of it is sin. And none of it will help us flourish. And again, if flourishing is the goal, then we've got to humble ourselves before him. It doesn't mean you can't make plans. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be ambitious. It's just don't remember, don't forget the order in which things work when you follow Jesus. And and that he has the right to redirect at any time. And that's why then there's one more phrase to see. And that phrase in verse 17 is this. We have you who say, you don't know, if the Lord wills, all such boasting. Thankfully, James finishes in verse 17 with the following phrase, the right thing to do. The right thing to do. And when we study the Bible, isn't that what we always want? Lord, I see what you say. Tell me what to do. Well, James does that. Exactly that. He tells us the right thing to do. Look at verse 17. Therefore, to the one, to anyone, to the man, woman, or young person, who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him, to her, to them, it is sin. Now, I believe that is a solid spiritual principle for the whole Christian life. I mean, you can take that one to the bank in any respect. Well, to know the right thing to do and not to do it, that's sin. But there are two specific points of application for it here. At least I think that we need to take hold of today. What is the right thing to do, knowing we have to live in this tension of of being planner, making plans, being ambitious, seeking to do great things for the Lord and, and take care of our responsibilities in life, yet always yielding to him? Well, I think there's two points of application. Number one, when God's will, listen, when God's will in any situation is clear, because there's a verse you can go to, that's what we're supposed to do or not supposed to do, or he somehow, through prayer, through, through seeking wisdom, through legitimate conversation, a, a direction, a plan, a step of faith has become clear. When, when God's will in any situation is clear, the right thing to do is to, guess what? Obey. When God's will is clear, the right thing to do is to obey, even if there's a need for further instruction. And this is where I think it gets maybe hardest for us as believers, because Well, maybe it's just hard for me. I don't want one step. I want five, right? I want to see the whole thing. And and sometimes 
All he gives you is enough light to take the next step. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, but it may not show me the whole path. But here's another solid spiritual principle that I've seen time and again, both in the Bible and in this church, that when you obey the light that he gives you, he gives more light. Everyone who has, they shall receive more. I think that applies here. And, and sometimes he says, put your feet in the water before I part it. Step out in faith. You've got enough to go. You can't have all the answers yet. I'm not going to show you how the need is going to get met, where the funds are going to come from, how the, how the situation is going to work out, if the person is going to respond in kind. But I told you to put your foot in the water. I told you to take a step of faith. And, and you obey the light, and I'll give you more light. And, and I've seen that, and you probably, if you think about it, if you've known Jesus long, you have too. When we know the right thing to do, his will is clear, we obey. James says to do otherwise is sin. Second, when God's will in any situation isn't clear, that's what we're really stuck on, right? That's where we struggle. When God's will in any situation isn't clear, the right thing to do, this is no surprise either, is to pray and pray and pray. In the absence of clarity, God says, seek my face. In the absence of certainty, God says, seek my face. Ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. Because remember, and we know this because we talk about it all the time, but I forget it just like you. Ultimately, God's goal usually isn't to give me whatever it is I'm after. It's to make me more like Jesus. And the more I seek him, the more I'll become like Jesus. And the more I pursue him, the more I'll become like Jesus. And the closer I get to him, the more I'll fall in love with Jesus. And then the, the answer to the prayer, hey, that's sometimes just icing on the cake. It's just a sign of his, of his goodness. We must seek him and do it on the basis of Jesus' own confession. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And, and you know, between those two, points of application. When you know his will, obey. When you don't know, pray. The common thread those two choices share is that both require a deep, deep spirit of dependence. A deep spirit of dependence. As Micah 6.8, many of you probably remember this verse or you've learned it along the way in your journey with Jesus. Micah 6.8 so beautifully puts it. Both of those options, to obey or to pray, compel us to, as he says in that verse, to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. He has shown you, people, what is good. He has shown you what he desires of you. He wants you to walk humbly with him. He wants you to walk faithfully and dependently with him. And that is always the right thing to do, always. And it is the way in which we can flourish. You know, I don't think it's any coincidence that we're in this passage on Independence Day weekend. God has a funny way of shuffling the schedule. And I told you before, he's been doing it all year. I don't think... It's coincidental or incidental. Because while there are respects in which independence is worth celebrating in society and self-governance, I'm wearing these socks today for a reason, okay? I love independence. So <laughs> it's a good thing in some respects, but in the spiritual realm, listen, 
In the spiritual realm of walking with Jesus, a spirit of independence is a recipe for disaster. It's, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's why, and I didn't know this until recently, but there have been several points in the history of the church, not for a long time as best as I can tell, but there have been seasons in the life of God's people when when God's people were just, they were specially aware of what James is saying here, that we live under the lordship and the direction of Jesus, that, that we have to live an if-he-is-willing kind of life. For that reason, at certain instances in, in the past of the church, believers, when they were writing to one another, when they wrote letters and corresponded and sent messages to one another, there were seasons when every time after they'd written the letter, whatever it was, business letter, love letter, uh, uh, just an update on circumstances, and sign their name at the bottom, that after signing their name, they would add two letters, D-V. They would add the letters D-V. This is a common practice among the Puritans, for one example. D-V stood for Deo Valente, Latin for God willing. God willing. I love you, and this is, this is my plan, my dream for our life together. DV, God willing. Uh, we're going to enter into this business agreement. I'm going to contract with you for these services. DV, God willing. We're going we're gonna to carry out this plan. We're going to do this thing. We're going to meet up again someday soon. DV, God willing. Lord willing. Deo Valente. Now, I'm not... I'm not implying you need to start putting that at the end of all your emails going forward. I'm not saying it needs to be added to text messages. might not be a bad idea, but I mention it because I think it so clearly points us to the big idea of this passage and therefore of today's message, which is this. Hold your plans loosely and Jesus tightly. Hold your plans loosely and Jesus tightly. I submit we should wrap up this July 4th Independence Day weekend by declaring our dependence, our dependence on the Lord. The worship team comes back up to lead us in a final song. Let's bow before him. Let's just quiet our hearts before him and just begin to to really process, because there's been a lot of talking and not a lot of quiet for the last little while, just to take a couple of moments of quiet and say, Lord, where, where would you have me? <laughs> where in my life ought I put the letters, start putting the letters DV, Deo Valente, if the Lord wills? Lord, where have I taken matters into my own hands? Or where do I just find myself doing it again and again? And maybe I don't even mean it to be sinful. I'm not trying to be presumptuous, but Father, it's so hard. Where does God want you today? Not to, not to just let go, but, but to yield to him. To humble yourself before him. To say, Lord, before I go further down this path, this road, with this idea, with this ambition... Maybe I better run it by you one more time. Maybe I better run it by you for the first time. There are things in your life you want. There are things in this church we want. 
you're not alone living in the tension between what you desire and Lord willing. We're all there. We're all called to walk by faith. Maybe the prayer you need to pray right now, and I'm just going to then give you 30 seconds of quiet just to do it, is to say, Lord, I need 